Welcome to the Marion Consort podcast. I'm Rory McCleary, Artistic Director of the Marion Consort. As part of our exploration of the music of early Baroque German composer Heinrich Schütz, I recently spoke to Professor Peter H. Wilson about Schütz's Kleine Geistige Konzerte and the historical context for these amazing pieces. We also chatted about Hans Heberle's Zeitregister. Heberle was a cobbler who lived in Germany during the Thirty Years' War, and his Zeitregister is a kind of diary documenting his experiences and everyday life during the conflict. So I'm delighted to be joined this morning by the Chichely Professor of the History of War at the University of Oxford and also an academic fellow of All Souls College, Professor Peter Wilson. Peter is a renowned expert on the Thirty Years' War um, and is also a best-selling author on that topic and also the Holy Roman Empire. So who better to talk to about the Thirty Years' War when we're contextualising the music of Heinrich Schütz? So, Peter, thank you so much for, for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much. To start off with, I've been greatly enjoying reading your book about the Thirty Years' War, uh, which I, I started last week. Um, I'm really sorry to ask this because I've, I know that you say at the beginning of your argument that, of course, one of the problems of the Thirty Years' War is it's very difficult to condense and summarise exactly what it was and how it started and where it all comes from. But perhaps for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with this incredibly important conflict for you know Central Europe and the history of Central Europe, I mean, it certainly touched on the lives of really everybody living there during the time. It would be great just to hear from you a little bit about the origins of the conflict, who was involved and exactly what it was, really. Right. Well, that is indeed a, a quite a difficult question. And um, obviously one of the things that, that people have debated and are still debating. And I, and I think the, the simple answer, it's a, it's a war about the religious and political order in the Holy Roman Empire, which is um, Europe's largest state. So the area of modern day Germany and Austria, the Czech Republic and uh, fringe bits of, of, of what would now be um, Denmark and France. And I think it's important to, to distinguish this was a, a conflict that began in, in 1618 with the famous defenestration of Prague, where three of the representatives of the Holy Roman Emperor are thrown out of the castle window. And it continues um, with some intermissions until October of um, 1648. And it runs... It's separate from the other wars that are going on in Europe at the time. So there's a long running war between um, the Dutch and the Spanish. There's a war between Spain and the Dutch that starts sort of in the in the 1630s. There are other conflicts in the Baltic and so on. And these are related, but they're 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 nonetheless separate. And there is a danger that at times that the, all these wars might merge together, but nonetheless the main protagonists are trying struggling to keep them apart. Um, so if, you, if you're trying to work out what the, the, the causes are, I think, again, the, the key thing to, to remember is that this isn't inevitable. I mean, this really is, is, is tragic. It's a successive failure to contain um, regional crises that then um, uh, continue. And so it's fought between um, the Habsburgs, the Austrian Habsburgs, who hold the imperial title in the empire, um, and they're on. They're supported by largely by Catholic and some Lutheran princes, and they have a, a range of opponents that are initially mainly within their own lands and within um, the rest of the empire, uh, and who are opposing imperial power and opposing um, re-Catholicization measures. And the, the Habsburgs repeatedly win, um, but the war is, is is then sort of restarted by. 
um, various powers that that want to want to see either the Habsburgs defeated or, or at least kept busy so that they can't help their their Spanish cousins. Um, so we have uh, intervention in the in the 1620s from the Danes. Then in 1630, the war is restarted by the Swedes, who have their own security concerns and interests. Uh, and then when the Swedes are, are facing total defeat, um, the French um, join as a, as, a, as an ally, and uh, ultimately the war is settled by this this compromise peace, the Peace of Westphalia. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I was really interested also to, to read um, in what you said that the, the build-up to the, the Thirty Years' War was more like a courtroom drama um, than a kind of than a battlefield. So a lot, I guess a lot of kind of litigious issues, which, as you say, then kind of boiled over into this conflict. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, the, this is a highly legalistic political culture and all the protagonists are, are very, very concerned to make sure that they present themselves as operating within their definition of, of imperial law. I mean, this is an age where it's impossible to disentangle faith from um, the legal order and, and, and political structures. So, uh, you know, to defy the law is also to defy God. So they're, they're very concerned to make sure that they, they cover themselves by, by claiming that they are upholding the imperial constitution and, and their opponents are the ones who, so in the, in the case of the emperor he accuses his opponents of being rebels um, and in the case of, uh, of, of his opponents they, they're claiming he's a, he's a tyrant who's exceeded his powers. And I guess it's fair to say that what began in, in a rather sort of um, bloodless le- legal wrangling certainly doesn't end up that way it transforms into something rather different something rather bloodier oh definitely yes i mean this is this is this is horrible from from the word go basically so once the fighting starts in earnest which is sort of in the summer of, of 1618 i mean things are really very very nasty and so it's not a case of the of escalating acts of violence more it's a case of escalating scale so in the in the beginning the first half of the war until 1629 the war is fought in between one and three regions of the empire simultaneously and when the Swedes intervene then the war becomes general so from about 1631 it's fought um, across virtually the entire empire uh, and that's the the, the the decade really of the of the greatest impact and then in the 1640s it, it narrows down as some areas are basically knocked out and forced into a kind of neutrality that is largely benevolent towards the, the French and the Swedes and then the war is channeled into a number of areas such as the Danube Valley um, and parts of Bohemia where the level of destruction in those areas is then extreme, but the other areas are beginning to recover a bit. And of course, this presumably would have had a huge effect on the people living in these territories all the way through through this war. I mean, one of the things we've tried to do in our second programme is to contextualise the pieces uh, with a little bit of um, original testimony from somebody who lived in Germany during this period, uh, a cobbler called uh, Hans Heberle and his um, diary, which he calls the, the Zeitregister, the sort of the, you know, the uh, register of the times. And it's really this harrowing stuff. And, you know, there are some extracts um, that really speak to that. But I wonder if you could tell us how typical his experience was, you know, whether this account is unique, whether there is other first-hand testimony, and, you know, and if so, perhaps how it differs or whether everybody's having an equally terrible time. Well, we're, we're actually very fortunate in that we're discovering more and more of these um, sort of primary testimonies. So these are, uh, yeah, in his, his case, he, he starts off by keeping notes and then he writes them up retrospectively as, as a kind of memoir. And that's very typical. There are also annotated house books or people would buy almanacs 
books and so on, and they'd write in, you know, things that that, that, that they found interest, or they'd cut out um, newspapers. So this is an era where the um, the regular commercial press ex- explodes because you know people are desperate for news inf- information. They want to know what's going to happen, whether the war's heading their way, and so on. We probably have around about four hundred or so, um, which are uh, um, of varying lengths. I mean, they're predominantly by men, but there are um, nuns, for example, who, who who keep accounts too. This is also an age, obviously, as, as I'm sure you know, that of expanding literacy. So uh, it's not so uncommon, particularly for a Protestant to, to, to in his case, you know, a fairly poor individual to, to be literate, although the extent and the detail of his account, it does make it, um, you know, a, a really valuable, a really valuable one. I think if we're trying to trying to understand, you know, how ordinary people such as that would be affected. I mean, I think the thing to remember is that this is an area, an era where people are, you know, struggling to make ends meet. So subsistence is, is your is your daily daily battle for most most people. And you might think that, um, you know, he lives on a small farm, so the average farm might have got food stores to keep you over the winter. You know, maybe you know five hundred daily rations, so for the keep you going. You know, if you have a family of, of, of five or in his case, he has 10 children. Most of them die, though. So, you know, small family with, say, some living farmhands, things like that. You might have about 500 daily rations stored up. Um, if, if a single infantry regiment pitches up, including its sort of camp followers, you're talking about maybe 2,000 people. I mean, that's your, your entire year's worth of food gone, and it doesn't even feed the troops that are, are passing through. So it gives you an indication of, of, of the fragility of life and why the appearance of troops could you know as this veritable plague of locusts they just consume everything and presumably that's the troops who are nominally fighting on the people's side well yes uh, i mean that's that's one of the one of the striking things i mean i uh, you know it's often presented as a religious war and um certainly you know some people see it very very much in these partisan terms but i mean um Haverly and his family have to flee you know, I think about 30 times um, to, to the city of Ulm, which is nearby. And that includes fleeing from the Swedes, who are Lutherans, who are supposedly fighting to uphold um, uh, the Protestant interest in, in the empire. So you're in, once, you, once you encounter troops, um, uh, it doesn't really matter, you know, which party they're, they're, they're on. They're, they're all behaving pretty badly. And I suppose given the kind of the enormous geographic spread of this war, it really would have touched, you know, almost everybody at some point over the course of this, because also it's so it's so protracted, it lasts for such a long time. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, that that I think is is a very good point because I mean we've got to remember this is 30 years, so that's a generation. By the end of the war, very few of the political leaders who are there at the beginning are still alive. Of course, this this is is it's something that is makes a huge impact on everyone's life, but it affects people differently and it depends very much where you live. Um, so those people who live close to uh, major transit routes, roads, key bridges, things like this, that's naturally where the military operations tended to, to be concentrated. If you live in a, a more far-flung, isolated community, you, you, you generally stood a better chance of, of, of surviving. I mean, he lives um, in southwest Germany, which is largely unaffected in the 1620s but then is the epicenter of the war in the early 1630s. So, you know, again, how, how the conflict affected you um, 
would vary depending on time and place and also your social state. Um, and I must admit, because until I started researching the kind of the historical context of, of Schutz and his music, I had heard of the Thirty Years' War, but I wasn't aware of its significance or of its impact, because I, I think the death toll is somewhere between kind of four and a half and eight million people and possibly up to kind of 60 percent of the German population. This is the major impact, um, is is the demographic impact. I mean, it's very, very difficult to calculate this because, of course, you're you're dealing with a very long period of time. And also a lot of the population loss are are refugees, so people who who leave the area. And and life is sort of fairly precarious for for ordinary people at the the best of times, but it certainly makes this much worse. And the troop movements, um, of course, spread disease. And, you know, Haberley loses most of his relations in the the 16th, thirties to to the plague which has basically been brought by the imperial army returning from a campaign in in, in italy and um, that particular epidemic so perhaps we could now uh, focus in a little bit more on to dresden uh, which of course was uh, the home of heinrich schutz and where he spent almost his entire career um, at the electoral court how would dresden have been affected because of course as you say the conflict seems to have kind of traveled around so that some places were unaffected at one time but then um, were kind of hotbeds of, of fighting and, and of, of difficulty and disease and deprivation at others well he's of course in the in the employ of the of the saxon electors and um electoral saxony is 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 sort of c- comes out ra- rather badly in most accounts but actually is is one of the more sensible um protagonists so that their their goal is really to try to resolve the conflict um and they do that by by starting um backing the emperor trying to bring the war to an early conclusion uh, and then when um the emperor's policies um threaten the peace by the late 1620s they're trying to persuade him to to to, to be reasonable and and, and to, to re- restore order um, but ultimately they're they're forced to join the Swedes they they, they do this tactically um, so although they're Lutheran they're actually largely supporting the the, the the Catholic uh, emperor and the interests of peace. Siding with the Swedes is really to, to try to put pressure on the on the emperor, and they they um, succeed. So the Swedes are defeated. The emperor makes concessions. Everything seems to be moving in the right direction by 1634. But then the emperor makes the mistake of basically entrusting Saxons with driving the Swedes out of, of the empire, arguing that you know they were responsible for bringing them in there in the first place, which isn't strictly true. Um, and this this is uh, enormously costly and goes badly wrong. And Saxony basically is forced out of the the war into um, neutrality with much of its territory still occupied by the Swedes, which lasts until 1650. So the key thing here is the, the enormous cost of this in, involvement. So Saxony is a, is a protagonist. It's it's um, occupied, particularly in the 1630s and early 1640s. It's a major battleground. The electorate is basically bankrupt by 1624. Um, so the impact in, in Saxony is, is troop movements, which are basically swirling around Dresden in the, in the 1630s as, they, uh, as military operations swing um, in all directions across its, its territory and all the while the, the, the elector is spending more and more money that he doesn't have. And I guess that explains um, exactly why um, Schutz wrote these pieces, his um, the small sacred pieces, the Kleine Geistliche Konzerte, because he, he even says in a letter to um, to Johann Georg I, to his employer, um, that there's no great demand in the present circumstances to produce any elaborate music, um, and that he says that his company of instrumentalists has become considerably weak and diminished. Um, either they've gotten old they're unable to travel owing to old age and physical infirmity. So I guess all the young people have left to go and get jobs somewhere a bit more secure and a bit less precarious. 
and so he says you know this is why i've written these small pieces because I, I, I can't find the forces we don't have the instruments they're all broken and can't be repaired we don't have the personnel to perform it schutz i mean understandably i guess given everything we've discussed around this time in the 1630s into the 1640s he travels quite a lot he travels away he goes back to venice um in 1628 and then he goes to Copenhagen twice in the 1630s and 40s for quite extended periods, I guess, because things weren't very happy at home. But um, how dangerous would it have been to kind of travel across Europe in that way at this time? Well, it would have been dangerous. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, travel was, was considered dangerous at the best of times. So um, this is an era where you basically don't go out of dark unless you're carrying literally a big stick. Um, so it's, it, women would carry knives and weapons as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, you expect to be armed. You ex- you, you're expecting um, danger. Um, but it's also um, a, a time where um, there was a recognised system of passports and, and what were called safeguards. So um, you would you would get these secured by um, you know high high ranking military officers who would put their name to it uh, and would expect these these uh, papers to be respected. So you could get travel documents, in other words. And he does go. I mean, when he goes to to, to Venice, he he's he's actually. Um, quite nicely timed to to uh, uh, miss some of the some of the fighting, um, and again the same is true when he goes to to, to Copenhagen. Um, it, it is at the time when Denmark is is temporarily exited the war, and before it engages in a in a, when the Swedes. Uh, attack it basically to make sure that the Danes can't mediate a, a peace that would be um, against Sweden's interests. So he, his, his, his visits um, are quite fortuitous in that, in that sense. Well, and I think fortuitous for us as well in that say, his career could have been rather shorter and, and well, his surviving works could have been rather fewer, I think. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and and I and I think this, you know, he he his response is is a, is of course a creative one, and we got to remember this. I mean, people, you know, in in, in many ways, um, uh, you know, this is a, a flowering of German culture. I mean, part of it is a kind of reaction to the war, so a reaction to foreign influences which are associated with with, with foreign armies, um, but it's also of having to improvise um, and having to, to to make do with 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 straightened circumstances. And music, I mean, was. You know, as you know, I mean, it's obviously an ex- much more expensive uh, than than some of the other art forms, and had developed very much in in, in Dresden, and, and and yeah, it suffers, but he he does respond in this kind of very creative, artistic way. It's interesting to hear you say that some of the um, artistic response was a reaction to invading armies. So you mean that a kind of a, 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 an internal German style was developed because they didn't want foreign influence. Yes, you get you definitely get this with 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 poetry and, and literature. There's a there's a, a a kind of movement that's already started just prior to the to the conflict, which is sort of to to pu- supposedly purify um, the German language, to to rid it of foreign words, uh, and to and to create new sort of poetic forms. There has various sort of sort of literary and cultural societies, and in fact, uh, you know, they cross confessions and um, senior army army officers are also involved in, in in some of these so and and that is is, is very much part of this kind of reflection and, and and response um to the foreigners who are usually not named but it's it's foreigners that have, have brought all these ills to to germany so it's interesting to hear you say that because of course schutz himself was so heavily influenced by italians by the italian style because he studied in venice with gabrielli and then he obviously he goes back in 1628 where he um spends some time with claudio monteverdi um and really kind of absorbs a lot of what he's doing as well which is this development of the the Gabrielli style this Venetian style um but in some other ways I guess he is 
really absolutely central for developing this sort of idea of a German style of composition, because of course what he does is uh, he sets the German language really very extensively, both in the Musikalisches Exequien, which is this German requiem mass for which he kind of cobbles together all these various texts, many of which were chosen by the, um, you know, the mass's sponsor and patron, mm. um, Heinrich II, um, but also in his Kleine Geistige Concerta and some of his other works. And he does still set a lot of texts in, in Latin, but he also sets a lot of, um, a lot of German language texts as well. And is seen by some, and certainly I would agree with this, as the kind of the German analogue for Purcell, in that mm. he's writing roughly around the same time, but also is the first composer to really get a handle on how to set text, you know, really idiomatically and to find that inflection in the vernacular. Mm. Um, and it's, it just, it seems to work so naturally, um, his setting German text, you know, his understanding of the scansion and it, it really, it all flows together. So I think Schutz is an interesting example because he is this kind of synergy of external foreign Italian influence, but then also using that to kind of to shape a new German musical style. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's very very interesting, and in, in this sort of the, the the poetic German style, I mean, is is very much it does permeate the everyday because a lot of the kind of printed broadsheets which are commenting on the war or reporting on the war have a have a rhyme text, um, and this is because if you couldn't read, you could pay uh, the, the the salesman to, to to read it out aloud. Um, so the, the the rhyme text, of course, helps with that. So uh, you know, even in popular culture. Um, you know, Sort of rhyming and 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 the lyrical German language is is also um, you know an important part of, of of everyday life in this period. That's fascinating, and it? it makes me think of um, I recently watched the Paul Greengrass film The News of the World uh, with Tom Hanks, where I guess the same thing is going on in America. What a hundred, hundred and fifty years later, yeah. where you know uh, people are traveling town to town to read the news to the illiterate. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we we touched on it earlier on, really, almost right at the beginning. But I, I guess it'd be interesting also just to hear some of your thoughts about the kind of you know the relationship between the war and everyday life, and also the kind of you know the um, the ideologies behind the war, and the relationship with people's everyday faith. Because obviously we know, and you said mm. that the war is kind of it's supposedly a religious war. Obviously, the religion and politics are inextricably intertwined at, at this time. Um, but in, certainly in, in, in Heberle's account, it's fascinating to read the way that it's peppered with these religious tropes, um, you know, both positive and negative. And for somebody who had experienced an incredible amount of hardship in his life, as you say, so many family members, children, uh, brothers, sisters, uh, wives, um, all dying and, you know, having to flee his, his home and hide in the forest and witness all sorts of terrible things. I mean... I was really shocked by some of the more lurid details, which we actually didn't include in the readings, including you know, cannibalism, which yeah. seems to have been rife at some points, um, you know, and all sorts of other things. Um, but it's interesting the way that all of that is kind of contained within this this Protestant worldview for him. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think things things like cannibalism and, and sort of tales of infanticide and and so forth. I mean, these these are very common in in the kind of rumours and so on that are swirling around, and they're used as kind of markers of of atrocity. I mean, I think that these things. I mean, that there is some evidence to suggest that some of these things happen, um, but in in many ways, it's it, they're they're used to sort of kind of make the point that that things are getting out of hand, and I think that's the the constant fear here is that this is exceeding all bounds but in fact it, it doesn't actually military operations remained for all the kind of violence that surrounds them they remained under political control and the war was under direction and the authorities make a concerted effort really regardless of what faith they adhered to 
to to say that this is divine punishment for the population's sins um so it's kind of like your fault not ours um so you've 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 been you haven't been dutiful diligent um uh, subjects and you've been having impious thoughts and therefore god is is punishing us, all of us until you behave basically this 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 punishment is going to go on um and this is also this is locked in to the commemoration of the conflict um which is widespread there's lots of public celebrations once peace you know once they actually believe the peace is at last going to hold so in the early 1650s and this sort of idea that the conflict has been divine punishment is is, is constantly being being reinforced well i guess yeah there seems to be a huge amount of superstition the number of kind of accounts um you know the first-hand testimony i've read where they mentioned there being a comet coming over and that you know and that's that's going to be it that's it yeah <laughs> if you see a comet that you know you know you're in for a bad time well, this, this, this. I think. I mean, that, this, of course, is the trigger for for Haverley to, to start writing, and the, the famous this comment that, that actually appeared in November of um, 1618. So the war had already started, but it's a very, really good example. It's good to. to to, to bring that up because people were were concerned about having the wrong fear you know to be frightened of violence or to be frightened of, of the comment is to be frightened of the wrong thing you could you should be frightened of god um so you know what these portents might mean and how to interpret them was it was it was, was a big problem um and the cause of anxiety and and it often with retrospect they then got reinterpreted and of course the the comet is signaling this this sort of 30 years of, of, of conflict i mean he's he starts writing up his notes in about 1634 well you know there's been a long war by then and of course he, he interprets the comet as as this portent but uh, at the time there's, there's a sort of uncertainty as to as to what it might mean i see so kind of rationalizing after the fact yeah yeah i mean i'm yeah. fascinated though about this use of you know kind of um religious belief as a means both of control but also kind of you know propaganda and psychological warfare i guess as well Yes, I mean the, the the thing is that the as I say, the authorities really wanted to keep control of what was going on. So there's there isn't there are no calls to to holy war. I mean they they don't want the population to take up arms and start murdering their neighbours. Um, you know this is this that, that would be wrong. That would be an affront to the established order, and it would it would be a front to the the type of war they're trying to fight a, a, a war correctly despite the fact that they haven't got money to do this. And that's a lot of major reason for all the violence. So the, the mobilisation is, is much more, as you say, it's this sort of psychological mobilisation to instil um, obedience. And that really crosses the confessions. I mean, all all three sort of Lutheranism, Calvinism and Catholicism, they're all basically doing the same thing with that. All of these trials and, uh, uh, and troubles are there really, you know, testing your faith and, you know, uh, the, the Lutheran funeral sermon is always about, you know, the, the departed is, is a good Christian, and this is demonstrated by their their fortitude and their continued faith, and how they've overcome multiple challenges uh, 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 across their life. And I mean, the, the war heightens that, of course, but we we have to remember that. You know, this is an era where roughly every thirty years or so there would be a substantial outbreak of plague. Um, that you know half of, of all live births wouldn't make it until the age of 15 once you if you lived until about 15 then you could expect a reasonably good life into your sort of 60s or so infant mortality was common it's heightened of course by in in the war by malnutrition and by the increased incidence of the plague and that's very much demonstrated with with Haberley's um, own experience, uh, only two of his 10 children outlive him. I mean, this is something that I found really fascinating is that throughout this whole digital series that we've been undertaking, um, 
starting with the music of England in the kind of 1580s and 1590s, actually, you know, the, the contemporary resonances, because once you start looking for it, uh, you know, um, you find that actually all of these eras are touched by, by plague, you know, so mm. we were looking at the music of William Byrd and he moves out of London around the time there's a really bad outbreak of plague. In and so, you know, actually this business of kind of, you know, being locked down and, you know, having to worry about that is, you know, something, again, is very uncommon for us nowadays. Um, but it's something that obviously in the past they really had to deal with all, all the time. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, the idea of, of quarantine and so on. So along the Habsburg frontier in Hungary, there, there is a quarantine stations all the, all the way the whole frontier is a, is a sort of quarantine and militarized zone and to control the the communications with the ottoman controlled um, southeastern europe so these are the, yeah they were very familiar with with with, with this and and had suffered a, an, an even higher mortality rate well thank you so much um professor wilson thank you so much peter for your time uh, today and for this fascinating insight into this area of history and how it connects with and you know informs um how we think about and listen to schutz and and these two wonderful sets of pieces from the 1630s the exec fin and then the, the kleine geistige concerta um and i would thoroughly recommend um seeking out um peter's book europe's tragedy a new history of the 30 years war like i said at the very beginning when i apologize for asking him to summarize the war in two minutes or less it's a topic that really does defy that and you know ends up obviously being grossly oversimplified by it um so i, I would thoroughly recommend reading that which is for me a fascinating discovery of this conflict that i knew relatively little about but which has been so important certainly was so important for shaping european history for generations after So that's the end of this edition of our podcast. As always, thanks for listening. You can hear our performance of works from Schütz's Kleine Geistliche Konzerte, interspersed with readings from Hans Heberle's Zeitregister, on our website as part of our digital season of concerts, where you can also sign up to our mailing list. Please do follow us on social media, where our handle is at Marian Consort, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>